Let's open our Bibles as we're going to finish up the Song of Solomon this morning. One of 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote, definitely a love song. I've entitled the morning's message, The Covenants. And I've chosen just the last couple of verses because there's dialogue between the beloved who would be Solomon and then her response in verse 14, the Shulamite girl that he fell in love with. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 12. My own vineyard is before me, and you, O Solomon, may have a thousand and those who keep its fruit two hundred. You who dwell in the gardens of companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. And she replies, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And so concludes the book of Song of Solomon. The uh, Beloved here would be Solomon, and he's basically saying, I want to hear from you. Let me hear it. I have it underlined in my Bible explanation point. And her response to his request is just come quickly, make haste, and come quickly like a gazelle. If you were here on Wednesday, I mentioned um, our guide got all excited as we were making our way from Jericho up to Jordan because we got off road, and he says, you hardly ever see gazelles anymore. But we saw three of them in a short period of time. And they were just prancing around up on the hills as we made our way back to Genesis land. And uh, she likens um, her desire for her beloved to come. Make haste, come quickly, in other words. So we find in the Old Testament, Israel is regarded as a bride of Yahweh. Yes, this is a true love story between Solomon and the Shulamite gal. But um, the symbolism and allegory has always been regarded as Israel is regarded as the bride of Yahweh. That's in Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 16, and Hosea 2. And in the New Testament, the church is seen as the bride of Christ. We find that in 2 Corinthians 2, Ephesians 5, Revelation 17, and 21. The Song of Solomon illustrates the former and anticipates the latter, where you and I are today. So as we read the book, I've been teaching on Sundays from the allegorical view. Last week we talked about um, the wedding feast, the bride of Christ. This week I would like to um, talk about God's covenants that he made with Israel, and we'll look at those. And then I'd like to go into the New Testament and explain how the Old Testament covenants, even though mentioned as unconditional, how can they be unconditional and then yet annulled in the New Testament? You probably didn't lay up last night thinking about the subject. (laughs) But as things unfold, and as we watch um, daily... Israel become more of a focal point. Uh, Bibi being in the news every day with Putin and trying to figure out how this all fits together. We need to have a biblical perspective of what does the Bible teach? How is he going to deal with Israel? How can he keep unconditional covenants and promises 
that are clearly annulled in the New Testament, how can you bring them to pass? Well, it's my goal this morning to hopefully help us sort through these covenants and see uh, very, very clearly what the, the Bible teaches on these issues. Now, God loves Israel. They are the apple of his eye. They are his chosen people. He's made a covenant with them. God also loves his church. And for that matter, God loves the whole world. That's not the issue. The issue is, are we responding to his call? Solomon says, let me hear it. Call on me. And she said, make haste. I'm calling. Come quick. I'm waiting. And so I like the way it ends. It ends with a bride longing to be with her bridegroom. Indeed, that is the picture the Bible paints for the church's anticipation of someday being with our Lord. Matter of fact, that's how the Bible ends. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And that's how the word of God ends. But this week, I'd like to address the difference between Israel's covenant with God and God's covenant, apparently annulled because of Israel's inability to keep some of them, uh, how it compares with the church and is coming for the bride. Let's turn to Genesis 13 for an unconditional covenant for the land itself. So let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 13, picking it up in verse 14. This is God's promise to Abraham concerning the land. Now this is foremost in the news today. Um, This is the biblical perspective as the UN, the latest rumor is their mandate, is going to ask Israel to return to its pre-1967 borders, which would be very convenient for Russia right now as it very much is interested in maintaining a warm water port in the Mediterranean, but also if indeed the borders go back to pre-67, that would give the Golan Heights back to Syria, and that's where this major oil discovery was just made. So that's the world's perspective. The UN will vote on it, and uh, Israel will lose because we are no longer friends of Israel. Oh, you are, and I am but not our government, and certainly not our president. Anybody want to dare say amen to that? (laughs) Everybody knows it. So here's the covenant for the land. It's God's land. Verse 14, And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and to your descendants. God's the one who owns it. But now he's the one who's giving it. He says forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and width, and I will give it to you. And Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamia, which is in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. A couple of people were just killed in Hebron last week because it's part of, of uh, what we call the West Bank, which would be Palestinian territory. And then he said to Abraham, bring me three 
a three-year-old heifer, or a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him. He cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the bird in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great distress fell upon him. And then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years, prophesying. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions, speaking of Egypt, of course. Now as for you, you shall go your, to your father in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return. Uh, here's one of the places people always say that, uh, you know, what's a generation? Is it 40 years? Is it 70 years? Well, this is the one case you can make the case that it's for 100 years. Four generations would be 100 years for that generation. So if you ever hear that argument, this is where it comes from. They shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, there's a whole Bible study right here. God is long-suffering, and he's patient, not willing that any should perish. And he's not going to allow the children of Israel into the land until their iniquity, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and so on, until their sin was full, then he would use Israel as a rod of judgment, and they would take back the land that Abraham was given here. And it came to pass when the sun went down and was dark, behold, there was smoke, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those two pieces. Now, Abraham did not do this. This was a supernatural covenant being made and the torch passing between the two pieces is the Lord himself because he can swear by no higher than himself he is the one who is instituting this covenant on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants I have given this land and here's the boundaries from the river of Egypt that would be the Nile to the great river Euphrates, which is uh, up north by Syria and Turkish border in that area. The Kenites, the Kenzites, and the, the Kadamites, and the Hittites, and the Parasites, and Raphium, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and I always like to throw in the termites too, as long as we're, we're miting away here. All these different mites that are there, the land is going to be given to Israel. Now we can get sidetracked here because they never ever really took that much land and they never really gained that possession. But I bring you here because um, in verse 15, this is what I call an unconditional uh, covenant. And um, God is just giving it to them. So to set the record straight, when they talk about the land of Israel, First of all, you need to know there's no such thing as a Palestinian. There has never been, there never will be. There's no such thing as the land of Palestine. It was given that name by the Romans as an insult to their ancient enemies, the Philistines. And that's why it's referred to as Palestine today. 
you have Jordanian Arabs, you have Syrian Arabs, you have Egyptian Arabs, but there is no such thing as a Palestinian. Do your homework. All right, with that being said, that's the first covenant. Let's go to the second one in Genesis 17, just a couple pages away. The covenant of circumcision. Now this is going to be different And we'll pick that up in verse 10. He says, this is now my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you you shall be circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he who is eight days old when uh, he shall be circumcised, every male child in your generation who is born of your house or brought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant, and he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Again, it's an everlasting one. So let's um, go down to verse 19. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that that person shall be cut off from his people and has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, Now as for Sarai, your wife, you will not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and and laughed and said in his heart, shall a man be born uh, to a man who is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 and she's going to have a kid? Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He just thought it was hilarious. He says, that's a nice thought, Lord, but I already got Ishmael. Just, Just bless him. And God says, no. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter, because he laughed. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Now, for extra credit. Paul uses this in Galatians 4 as a whole Bible study, the issue between Ishmael and Isaac, one being a child of promise, But Ishmael was actually gotten after the flesh. Remember, uh, uh, he was a byproduct of Hagar. And they leaned upon their own understanding. We can't have kids. What are we going to do? Sarah gives uh, Abraham Hagar. She has Ishmael. But it was all, they're working it out. They were working it out in their own ways. It was after the flesh. This was impossible. This was a miracle. This was God's promise. So Paul picks up on this in the book of Galatians, and he makes the whole issue now of salvation, either it's going to be by faith through a promise or by your earthly works. And that's Galatians 4. We're going to touch on it, but really the whole chapter is developed around these verses right here. Now, having said that, let's go to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. 411 is the first one I want to look at. Galatians 5. 
Let's look at verse 21 of chapter four for starters. The issue now, can the law and grace coexist? And of course, the law was given to Moses and um, their job was to keep the law. So we read in verse 21 as Paul is no longer under the law, says in verse 21, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you even hear the law? And then he uses as the symbolism this whole thing with Hagar and Ishmael up to verse 31. And his argument is, you can't have it according to the flesh. You can't have grace and law coexist. They're mutually exclusive. One cancels out the other. It's either works or it's grace. Good place for an amen. It's either works or grace, and you can't have it. Now, I bring this up because what's creeping into the church today are people that are trying to go back and keep the Sabbath as part of, of, uh, of biblical Christianity. Some of them are gravitating saying, well, we need to keep the Jewish feasts too. Well, if you're going to do that, and that's going to be your mindset, then know this. Uh, tell me who desire to be under the law, who would want to go back and keep these things. Do you really understand the law? Because the law says you have to do it all perfectly. And if you don't do it all perfectly, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all of them. And so why intelligent people, some good friends of mine, um, are gravitating back and they want to be Sabbath day keepers. It's a, it's a leaven that's taking away the law. They don't understand it. Like it says in verse 11, tell me. You who desire to want to go back and do these things, do you really understand what you're talking about? Because if you do, you got to do all of it, not just one of it. You can't, I'll pick the Sabbath, I'll do that one, or I'll keep this feast and all that. No. It's either all or nothing, and they can't coexist. Colossians 2, verse 11, it says, In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of flesh by the circumcision of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul picks it up, and he wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to go back. So in in verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, with the liberty which Christ has made us free. From what? from trying to do things that they couldn't do themselves. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You want to be circumcised as as your covenant with God? Fine. But know this, you've got to keep all of it if you're going to keep one part of it. You have become entangled from Christ and you, are, and you who attempt to be justified by the law have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of the resurrection by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith worketh through love. You and I are saved by faith because we believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when he said, it is finished, to tell us die, he meant all the work is done. 
All you have to do is believe by faith that finished work. This was a question the disciples had in John 6. Lord, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he sent, period, right there. And then he says, that's the truth. You get that under your belt, and that that truth will set you free. From what? Trying to keep anything that you can't keep anyway. We're how many days away? A month away from uh, New Year's? What do we do every New Year's? We make that resolution. Oh, I'm going to lose that 20 pounds, I promise. I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. I, I, I'm a Y guy, so I always watch the first of the year. The first three weeks of January, the place is packed out. February 1st, everything's back to normal. Because <laughs> you can't do it. You need to give it your best shot, but you just can't do it. And the Lord knows that. But he says, if you understand grace, you'll know the truth, and it'll set you free. Mean you don't sin anymore? No. Means you still sin. Don't want to. Like Paul said in Romans 7. Don't want to. Things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I, 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 I should do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. It says, I thank Christ Jesus. That there, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Because all we have to do is say, Lord, I tried my best. Chuck Hedda saying, "Um, do your best and commit the rest. And when you fall short, John 1, 9. If you sin, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you're free. Is that easy? That easy. And Paul says, so don't go back and try to now say, well, I think I'm going to keep the Sabbath and I'm going to keep the feast and so on and forth. I, I say, tell me, do you really understand the law? All right, let's take it a step farther. Um, there are those who teach God has one salvation for Jews and another plan entirely for the church. It's one of my sidetracks I want to do this morning to address the false teaching of what's called dual covenant theology. It's very popular. And some pretty heavyweight teachers hold to it. For instance, John Hagee um, believes in dual covenant theology. Pat Robertson, uh, John MacArthur, and others. Now, these are well-known names in the Christian community. What is dual covenant theology? Basically, it's this. Dual covenant or two covenant theology is unique to our times in that it holds that the old covenants of the Bible's law of Moses remains valid for Jews, while the new covenant only applies to non-Jews or us Gentiles. It promotes the idea that the Jewish people have a separate plan to salvation through Abraham and the Mosaic covenants. In other words, Jews don't need Jesus for personal salvation. They're under a different covenant. And I want to address that this morning by having you turn to the book of Romans chapter 9. Paul, who was a Jew, if this is true, that there's one plan of salvation for the Jews because of covenants, and there's a different plan of grace just for Gentiles, then what Paul says in Romans 9, the first five verses, makes absolutely no sense to me at all. Let's read it. This is what he said. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. 
my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption of the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promise, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. What's he saying? He says, I'm bummed all the time. I'm heavy hearted. I'm laid low. And if I could change things, I would. I would go to hell, Paul's saying, if it meant that my Jewish brothers, the Jewish people, if they could be saved. Now, if you believe in dual covenant theology, what Paul says here, it makes no sense. Take it a step farther, go to chapter 10, and um, um, we're looking at uh, verses one through four. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. What does that mean? It means they're not saved outside of Christ. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Just getting back from Israel and watching them pray at the Wailing Wall, one of the gals asked the question, why do they go like this when they're up against the wall, praying like this? You know why? Because they have a zeal for God. They have a great zeal for God, but here, not according to knowledge. For they are being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Verse four is important. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness is to everyone who believes. Again, you cannot mix grace and works together. A new covenant um, was established. When and where? Let's go to Matthew 26, and we're going to the Last Supper. And I want you to remember that when Jesus is speaking, we only have Jews. Cornelius isn't going to get saved as the first Gentile for quite a while. So at the Last Supper, something is changing. In Matthew 26, in verse, oh, let's pick it up in verse 26. And they were eating Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to him and he said, drink from it, all of you, notice, for this is my blood and of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it, new with you in my father's kingdom. I think he has the marriage supper of the lamb in mind when that happens again. Where was the new covenant established? Jesus said so himself. This is it right here. It's a new covenant and it is annulling the old. And the reason, uh, the, the order for this here um, and why we we should be sharing and, and witnessing. Let's turn to uh, Hebrews at this point. Imagine 
You know, I notice it in certain denominations when, um, you know, go to church your whole life and, and yet not know the Lord is possible because of tradition. Now imagine being a Hebrew and you were used to keeping the traditions and the customs every single day. I mean, those grooves are deeply rooted in them. I believe Paul is the writer to the Hebrews. And his whole goal in the book of Hebrews is to show why the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to all of the covenants in the Old Testament. Hebrews are Jews. So we have the book of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 explains now, as if you're a Jew, you better have good answers to explain to a Jew why there's a new covenant and why the old one's not there anymore. So he says in verse seven, for in that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second one. If you could have pulled it off, then we wouldn't need a second one. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now this is in the Old Testament with the house of Israel and with the house of of Judah. This was in Jeremiah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. That's why they went into captivity. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and say, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is become obsolete? Absolute is growing old and ready to vanish away. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 15. And for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Those who teach... I'm talking about Hagee and Robertson and MacArthur right now, that you, don't, you can be saved apart from a personal relationship and a new covenant is false doctrine and false teaching. I personally went out of my way to, uh, I got attached to our, our guide, his name is Daniel, and we became buddies. And um, I tried to tactfully explain to him through Daniel. I figured it was a good way to start. His name is Daniel. Why not use the book of Daniel? And I let him know that the Lord loves him, but it was this book that actually pointed that Jesus is the only one who could be the Messiah. So I'm praying for, for my friend. But if I believed what Hagee and Robertson and MacArthur, they, they say don't waste your time witnessing to Jewish people because God's got a separate covenant with them. I'm here to tell you this morning that's simply not true. Do we want to say amen? amen? I mean, the scriptures, this isn't gray. This is black and white. You can't get it anymore, black and white. Paul, my heart is broken. I'd go to hell myself if it meant they could be saved. 
but they can't. And you can't have it both ways. And that's why, we, that's why God called Paul a Jew of the Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he goes on and brags about his Jewish heritage. He says, I cut it all dung. Forget about it. All for the excellency of the knowledge I have now of Jesus Christ. And this man spent the rest of his life doing everything that he could, writing the book of Hebrews, most of the books in the New Testament. So let's go to chapter 10 and picking it up. I think I have to go back to Romans for that one. Let's go back to Romans before I dive into this next trade of thought here. Yes, here it is, Romans chapter 11. Let me give you the order of what's going to happen here. The condition of the land is unconditional. So that can't be broken. But if there's a new covenant, then how can God keep the covenant that he has with the land? Well, here's how this is going to work out. In this period of time we're living in right now, there's a hardness or a blindness to the majority of the Jewish people. There are, when we were in Tiberias, they have the largest messianic, which are Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, in the country. I believe that every secular Jew knows a born-again messianic Jew. I believe they just know him, even if they're a distant second cousin or whatever. And guess what? They've heard. They've certainly heard if they've been on any of our tours what we believe and what we teach. But if they're blinded and their hearts are hardened, that's what we read in Romans 11, verse 25, where he tells us, I don't want you, brethren, that you're to be ignorant. God wants us to know certain things. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that hardening, if you have the King James, it's blindness, in part has happened to Israel. God allowed them not to see the Messiah for a season or the hardness to be there. And in part, that is, uh, to Israel, and then the word until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The implication here is that there's a time when the Gentile period comes to an end and the clock begins to beat again because God promised Israel seven more years according to Daniel 9. Now I'll be taking you there in a second. What do you suppose is gonna happen because what we have in view here is the rapture of the church. And um, just thinking, just knowing the people and being there, talking with my friend Daniel, he understood all too well. The problem is he didn't want to understand. Okay, does that make sense to you? He understood all too well, but he just didn't want to understand. And so if you don't want to understand, Jesus said people don't come to the light because they love the darkness more than they love the light. And so they don't come to the light. But what happens when they hear about their Jewish messianic friend that's no longer around. What happens then? You think that's not a wake-up call? All of a sudden, there's two witnesses that have supernatural powers. Yeah, Revelation talks about the first three and a half years. Revelation 7, the wind stops blowing. Revelation 7, 144,000 
Jews, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, all get supernaturally sealed and they become witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now, verse 26 will make sense. The rapture takes place. You have friends, I have friends, that are blowing you off and they don't want nothing to do with you. Oh, their thought patterns are gonna change radically the day after the rapture because there will be a lie according to 2 Thessalonians 2, that will deceive the whole world. That's true. But at the same time, it's gonna be a serious wake-up call for those that are left behind. So we read, and all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away in godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When is that going to happen? It happens after the rapture. Those who hold to the dual covenant take this verse, take it out of context and say, see, Israel's gonna be saved. Well, when are they gonna be saved? Well, they're gonna be saved when they hear and see Elijah and Moses. Um, They're gonna get saved when they have 144,000 Jews that are radical Billy Grahams that will be responsible, I believe, for the salvation of the nation of Israel. And I believe this is the the order, and that's the order that I understand this to be. Now remember the covenant that God made with Israel. Oh, they were out of the land, but they're back in the land right now. Isaiah 11, verse 11 says, I'm gonna bring them back a second time. And when they come back the second time, they'll never ever be driven out of the land ever again. They're there, and nobody's gonna take them out though there'll be those attempts. And so I want you to see sort of how this unfolds. I go back to the book of Daniel. And let's just take two verses out of uh, Daniel's chapter, very popular, important verse as it pertains to Israel. Of course, the first part of the chapter is Daniel's praying because they couldn't keep the law. They did all the sins of the people that dwelt in the land before them, so God takes them into captivity for 70 years. 70 years is up. Daniel prays this beautiful prayer, heartfelt repentance, how he blew it, how his people blew it, and they deserve to be punished, they deserve to be taken into captivity, but now the time is up. It's time to go home. The angel Gabriel appears to him. And the first thing he tells him, and I've been making a point of this, before information, Daniel, I want you to know that God loves you. And that was our point last week when we talked about our love for the Lord. Yes, we need to be informed. Yes, we need to know our Bibles well. Uh, But it's secondary to um, uh, loving the Lord First, and that's what he says here in verse 23, you are greatly beloved, Daniel. Therefore, because God loves you, consider the matter and understand the vision. Verse 24 is very important if you're gonna be a serious student of eschatology or the study of last day things. When it says 70 weeks are determined, Sheva Shabbat is what Daniel taught me. He was teaching me Shabbat Shalom, which is on the Sabbath, but then he wanted to teach me how to the beginning of the week, and that's Shabbat Shabbat. And that means have a good seven days, or have a good upcoming week. So 77s 
or 490 years, this next verse, please underline. Who is it for? It's for your people. Well, who's Daniel's people? Answer, Israel, right? Okay, and who else? And the holy city. So what I'm about to read pertains only to the Jewish people and to the city of Jerusalem in particular. God says he's gonna do six things in this 490-year period of time. What are they? Well, um, he's gonna finish the transgression. He's gonna make an end of sins. He's gonna make reconciliation for iniquity. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. And he's gonna seal up vision and prophecy. And he's gonna anoint the most holy. And he's gonna accomplish all of this. It was stopped after 69 weeks, according to verse 26, when the Messiah himself would be cut off. The Hebrew word is karat, it means executed, and he was executed not for himself. Only Jesus could fulfill this. This is why I wanted my friend Daniel to read read this, because you don't have to have faith. All you have to be is um, honest and do the math and it shows that Jesus is the only one who appeared on April 6, 32 AD and allowed himself to be worshiped as the king of Israel. The only one. So Jesus has to be the Messiah. And that's what I'm trying to get my, <laughs> my Jewish friend Daniel to be honest with. Nobody else could, could do that. And Jesus, uh, it goes on, he prophesies the destruction of uh, the city of Rome by the Romans The people of the prince who is to come has to come from the revived Roman Empire. So much for Joel Richards' book, The Islamic Antichrist, who I just happened to bump into in Israel. I was introduced to him, and when I was introduced to him, I gave no facial expression. And then my friend said, you know, the guy who wrote The Islamic Antichrist. Still no facial expression, and then things got awkward. Because I wanted to say, well, we know your book really, really well. We have our own critique on your book. And the Antichrist is not, is not going to be Islamic. How do I know? He had no idea about Daniel 9. Here it says he's going to come from the people of the prince who is to come. He's got to come from the Roman Empire. The Romans are the one that destroyed the sanctuary. And then the clock stopped when Jesus came. And so... Blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. It has a beginning point, Pentecost. The church has an ending point, the rapture of the church. Then what happens after the rapture of the church? God owes Israel seven more years. That's why verse 24 is so important. This prophecy about the Messiah is about Israel, the people, and the city of Jerusalem. Then verse 27, now between verse 26 and 27, we have a gap of 2,000 years. And uh, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week, which is what, seven years. In the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, it's called the abomination of desolation. Jesus spoke about it in Matthew 24. He says, Israel, when you see the abomination of desolation, this would be in the middle of the tribulation period, then run, run, 
So Jesus is verifying what Daniel is being revealed to by um, the angel Gabriel. And so we have what we call the 70-week prophecies. So the remnant, let's turn to um, Revelation um, 2 and 9. And let's just see if we can just piece this together this morning as we finish up the book of Song of Solomon and a study on the covenants. The order of events. Jesus In John 14, the same night that he established the new covenant, looked at the guys and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you're going to be also. So for the last 2,000 years, the Lord's been building a place for you. I believe that building is already done, almost done. And I believe that place is what we call in the book of Revelation here, the new Jerusalem. And I believe he has a place prepared for you and me that's there. Now, when the believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He goes to his home, to his chamber. Isaiah actually talks about that. But what about this remnant that's alive? When Jesus says, when you see this event, run. And then we find out that The Antichrist tries to destroy them, but they're protected. And when all is said and done at the end of the seven years, well, then what happens? Well, Matthew 25, verse 30 says, immediately after the days of the tribulation, then he will judge the nations. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Well, who are the sheep? The sheep are the remnant that didn't take the mark of the beast. They will go into the kingdom for the beginning longevity of life will be restored the curse will be removed the lion will lay down with the lamb all that will happen no thorns on roses no mosquitoes when you go camping it'll be great and so that's what's going to happen but they go in with a natural body and there still will be sin it says a man who's a sinner could die at the poor young age of 100 years old And so longevity of life. What's your point here, Dwight? That what God has planned for Israel during the kingdom age and what he has planned for the church are two different things. You see, we're the bride. And as Israel goes into the millennial reign, they go in with human bodies that eventually die. Now, what is if that's their role, imagine now, they're going to regenerate, they're going to have children, Everybody who goes in in the first place has already been judged. You became believers. Okay, you can inherit the kingdom. But after three or four generations of raising children, the Lord will never force anybody to go into eternity with him unless they personally choose to do so. Free will. It explains why the devil is shut up and sealed for a thousand years, so he won't deceive the nations but also explains why he will be let loose after the thousand years so he can go out and deceive who is ever deceivable, okay? So what are your great, 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 great grandkids isn't saved? Doesn't want to be, wants to do his own thing. What does the Bible tell us about our heart? 
It's deceitfully wicked of all things who can know it. I don't want to serve God. I want to do my own thing. Well, then I'm going to have to create an alternative choice because the Lord is going to rule and reign with what? A rod of iron. It's not going to be like Obama. Things are going to get done and things will be made right. If, If things are wrong, it'll be made right. He'll rule and reign with a rod of iron. But then, in a thousand years, the enemy is let loose. It's amazing, the throngs of people that rebel and come up against the holy city, Jerusalem. Well, the Lord speaks one word in their history, and we enter into eternity. But in closing, I want, we get so caught up this time of year with our traditions and uh, New Year's resolutions, and I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Gang, there's so much going on right now that is happening so quick that we should be just, our heads should be spinning with how late is it really? And our job is to seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all these other things will be added unto you. Good time for an amen. Our hearts need to be in heaven. Jim Elliott was right. He is no fool who will lose what he cannot gain to gain what he cannot lose. For living for Jesus, you're no fool because that's eternal and this is temporal. Another good time for an amen. That's the thing that we need to keep, keep our head at. That's what's important. So what is our role? Let's just look. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. These are promises. All the red letters here, the church is still on a planet. After chapter 4, it's not. But in Revelation 2 to the church of Thyatira, he makes this promise verse 26 he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him I will give power over the nations evidently with our resurrected bodies the new Jerusalem is about, will be about the size of the moon and it will be the most beautiful thing that's ever been created the, our eternal home And evidently, we have access to come and go. What is our job? Well, we will rule with him, as it says here, over the nations. For that thousand years of time, well, uh, Israel will have new borders. And matter of fact, I'll show you the new borders during the millennium. We'll put it up on the screen. If you read the book of Ezekiel, it tells you exactly, exactly during the millennial reign what tribes, there's 12 tribes there, the one in the middle is given to the prince or the Lord himself. Those are the boundaries and those are the tribes and all you have to do to get that information is read the last couple chapters of Ezekiel 47 and 48 and it tells you the boundaries. Some guy took the time to lay it all out and that's what it's gonna look like. So the center, the Lord says, the day's coming when you're not gonna be the tail, you're gonna be the head and everybody's gonna come to Jerusalem. Well, Remember, these are people with physical bodies. What about the church? We have supernatural bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to uh, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. This is Jesus taking the scroll out of the Father's hand. And when he takes the scroll out of his hand, the church begins singing this new song. Verse nine, it says, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain 
And you have redeemed us to God by your blood, notice, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And what has he done? He's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign where? On the earth. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's where you're going to be at night because you're going to have your own chamber that Jesus said he especially prepared for you. So our position during the millennium and the remnant of Israel that saved that goes into the millennial kingdom, one of my goals this morning is that you would have an understanding of the distinction and the differences between the two. I sort of want to end it on a romantic note though rather than a heavy Bible study on covenants. How does the Song of Solomon end? With the Lord, Solomon, saying, let me hear it. Do you love me or not? And what's, what, what, what does she say in return? Make haste, my beloved. Be like a gazelle on the mountains. Come quickly. And that's, we have a guy named um, Herbert. I don't know his first name, but he wrote this poem that I think ends the book of Song of Solomon. I actually read it on Wednesday night, but it's so good. I want to read it to you in closing again this morning because this is how I want to close the book of Song of Solomon with a longing that this man is able to put down. He's got a gift uh, of being a poet. He says, come Lord, my head doth burn, my heart is sick, while thou dost ever, will you ever stay away? The long deferrings would make me to the, wound me to the quick. My spirit gasps night and day. Oh, show thyself to me. Oh, take me up to thee. Yet if thou stayest still, why must I stay? My God, what is this world to me, this world of woe? Hence of all ye clouds, away, away. I must get up and see. Oh, show thyself to me, or take me up to thee. We talk of harvest, there are no such things. But when we leave our corn and hay, there's no fruitful year but that which brings. The last in love, thou dreadful day, oh, show thyself to me or take me up to thee. That's what Thessalonians says, that we will be caught up to him. Hebrews 10.38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And yet just a little while, and he that has promised to come will come. Hmm, just a little while. You mean Paul was looking for it in his day? Yeah. You see, the rapture is imminent. They were looking for it then. And that's exactly the way the Lord wants us to be. Just like the wise virgins with their lamps trimmed. We don't know the day or the hour. He just said, be ready. The Song of Solomon ends with the Shulamite gal. Couldn't end in a better way. Saying, come quickly, my beloved. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the book of Song of Solomon. This great love story with this king who had everything. Who falls in love with this Shulamite gal. And all they can think about is each other. And Lord, we, it's so easy for us to get caught up, especially during the holidays and being busy and all that stuff. But Lord, 
Help us keep you as our first love and help us keep um, that longing uh, to be home. And in the meantime, Lord, help us as your word tells us to occupy until you do come. Thank you for this book as we continue through the Bible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.